reading in Genesis chapter 10 and verse 1. Genesis 10 and verse 1. If you're visiting with us here this morning, you'll find out uh, quickly that what we try to do here is just work through a text of Scripture. Uh, the text that we'll be uh, dealing with today is rather lengthy. I'll give you an advance warning. And I think you'll, you'll be able to appreciate the message, at least stay uh, mentally engaged if you actually have the Scripture in front of you. And so you have a pew Bible in front of you. I'll be reading from a slightly different version, but you'll find this text on the bottom of page 6. Your pew Bible beginning in Genesis chapter 10 and verse 1. Hear now the Word of God. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Juvan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Togarmah. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Katim, and Dodanim. From these, the coastland people spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans in their nations. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sapta, Ra'amah, and Sabtaka, the sons of Ramah, Sheba, and Dedan, Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on the earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalneh, in the land of Shinar. From that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehobothir, Kalah, and Resin, between Nineveh and Kalah, that is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludim, Ananim, Lehabim, Naphtuhim, Pathrusim, Kasluhim, and from whom the Philistines came, Kaphtorim. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvadites, the Zemorites, the Hamathites. Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed. In the territory, the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem. Alam, Asher, Arp, Akshad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hol, Gether, and Mosh. Arp, Akshad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber was born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his day the earth was divided. And the brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almadad, Shelef, Hazar, oh boy, um, Hazar, Maveth. There it is. Jerah. Hadarim, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived from Mesha in the direction of Sephar to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies and their nations. And from these nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Now the whole earth had one language, in the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. They said, Come, 
Let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for your word in which we now come to study a text, uh, part of it, as we, uh, is evident, is, is very unfamiliar to us, and yet it is your word, so we pray that you would help us to consider it, to apply it to our lives. We thank you for your word. Help us. Speak to us, please. You are a God who speaks, a God who reveals, a God who communicates. We pray that you would do so even now this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1963, President John F. Kennedy made a famous speech in West Berlin there with his back to the Berlin Wall. And the climax of his impassioned address, uh, the part where the president paused and then cried out in German, Ich bin ein Berliner. What the president was hoping to say was, I am a Berliner. What he did not realize is that people from Berlin never call themselves Berliners. That is a term that they use to refer to a jelly donut. And so what the president said there with the Berlin Wall at his back was, I am a jelly donut. <laughs> of course, this is not the first time that meaning has been lost in translation. Pepsi once had a slogan, come alive with the Pepsi generation. They did not know that when you translate that into Chinese, it means Pepsi brings your ancestors back from the grave. <laughs> Coors once had a slogan, turn it loose. The Tazlars can correct me, but I'm told in Spanish, when translated, it means suffer from diarrhea. <laughs> and lastly, Carol once had a curling iron, which they called a mist stick until they learned that in German, mist is slang for manure. Uh, I guess not many people had use for a manure stick. Uh, so language is interesting, isn't it? Uh, there are many, many languages in this world. Uh, in fact, Wycliffe, that great Bible translation organization, estimates that there are 6,800 spoken languages throughout the world. I know one of them. Right? And, and uh, I've studied many of them. Perhaps you studied language in school. In seminary, they made me study Hebrew and Greek, French and German. And uh, um, they all have one thing in common, interestingly enough. They're hard. And, um, and so um, I, I don't know any of them very well. I have a little bit of Greek left over. But language seems to be difficult for me to, to uh, accomplish and to get a hold of. But nevertheless, the Bible speaks that as if language is a blessing to us. You see, God is a speaking God, isn't he? We've seen this in our study of Genesis, that God begins, and we see already in the chapter 1 that God speaks. That is, God communicates. God reveals. In fact, only our God can communicate. This is what the prophets would say, differentiate between our God and all the other false gods, is that they are mute. They cannot speak. 
We worship a God who can speak and He speaks to us and continues to do so even through His Word. This is how relationship with Him is possible. And He's even given us language, His image bearers. Unlike any other living thing on this earth that we can talk to one another, there's probably nothing that we can't talk about that we can relate to one another and, and form relationships with us. And He gives us His Word so He can speak to us and He gives us prayer so that we can speak to Him. And God has greatly blessed us with this. There are 6,800 languages that is upon this earth that can, if they rightly used, praise and worship God. Unfortunately, there are, there are 2,000 languages of those 6,800 that do not have the Bible in their language. Well, that's somewhat good news that 4,800 languages the Bible has been translated. But there are 2,000 remaining. The wonderful thing is that the Bible translators estimate by the year 2038, 25 years from now, there will be a Bible translation at least begun in every spoken language in the world. And they're trying to get that year to 2025. That's what happens when Christianity goes to a new land. It brings literacy. It brings a value for language and the word. And Christianity is spreading into every nation as we'll begin to consider this morning as we look at this text, as we look at the, the nations and the languages. We look at peoples and we, we ask, if you will, why, why are there nations? Why are there different languages? I mean, why is this world just not one nation with one language? Why are we all divided up into 6,800 languages or over 16,000 different people groups? I think the Bible has much to tell us this morning and much to apply to our lives as we consider this in four scenes. Number one, the people scattered. Number two, the people's pride. Number three, the people divided. And lastly, the people united. This morning, as we look at this text, we'll go to Babylon. The center of the ancient civilization, Babel means, or Babylon means the gate of the gods. And there we'll see God do a mighty and great work. But before we go to Babylon, we have a, as you already noticed, a genealogy staring at us, don't we? And we will here, first of all, consider the people scattered. Many people come to Genesis chapter 10 here, and this, of course, is the part we skip, isn't it? Or this is the part we read real fast. This is the part where... Your New Year's resolution to read through the Bible in a year kind of dies right here when you get to Genesis chapter 10, right? You get Amorites and Zemorites and Luddites and Dumbites, and you just think, I'm done, right? I'm not going to do this. Bunch of dead people. I don't know who they are. I don't know where they're from. I don't know what relevance this has on me. I can't even pronounce their names. Um, I, you know, I knew I was going to preach this text, and as I do, I read commentaries on the text to help me understand it. A lot of times these commentaries have uh, hints for preachers. There's a famous, my, one of my favorite commentaries, I very much was anxious to get to that part where it says hints for preaching this text. This is what the commentator said. It may very well be questioned whether a man should ever preach on a chapter such as this. Uh, and you would think that would discourage me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it may discourage you, but it doesn't to me. That's a challenge for me, so I'm excited as we consider this. It's the Word of God, and we're going to study it this morning. God put it in His Word. The Bible tells me that all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for correcting, teaching, rebuking, and training in righteousness. I believe that includes Genesis chapter 10. So I, we will study it here. It is, in fact, it's not exactly a genealogy. It's not this man had this son who had this son and that this son. It's more a list of nations. Um, and it's an ancient document. In fact, it's the most ancient document that mankind possesses describing the origin of nations. And anthropologists and secular sociologists have found it remarkably accurate. 
In fact, William Albright, one of the world's experts in archaeology in the Near East, says Genesis 10 stands absolutely alone in ancient literature without a remote parallel where we find the closest approach to a distribution of the peoples in genealogical framework. The table of nations remains an astonishing accurate document. And so we consider this table of nations here in Genesis 10, thinking about the people as they are scattered. You notice verse 1 tells us the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the sons were born to them after the flood. And so it's from these three boys that the earth was repopulated and they scattered over the earth. And we're going to look at each one of those sons in turn. We begin with Japheth. And we see that Japheth, uh, his descendants are going to settle in Europe. And they're going to settle up in Russia. And they're going to settle out into India. They're going to settle, in other words, the outer fringes of the world. Um, And going farther and farther away from the promised land. We know Japheth was uh, evidently the founder of Greece, where we get the word Japetos or or Greece. He has seven sons here in verse 2. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. We know Gomer settled the Crimea region. Tiras and Javan settled Europe. Magog, Meshech, and Tubal, anthropologists say, are is the origin of Russia. And uh, Madai is the origin of the Medes and the Persians. And we see a number of his descendants from there. But if you note verse 5, it says, From these the coastland peoples spread in their lands. In other words, these are maritime people who kind of spread out across the, across the world. They're going to go far. They travel away. And then interestingly, verse 5 ends with this. It says, each has his own language by their clans and their nations. And so we go from Genesis 9 where we're talking about Noah and his three sons. And all of a sudden we have this development of different nations. And the Bible is somewhat silent, at least up to this point, as to how we get that, these different languages. And we'll find out a little bit more when we get to chapter 11 in a moment. And so Japheth, he sends his descendants far and wide. They would cross the Bering Strait and settle in North America and South America as well. Which is very appropriate because you remember when Noah woke up from his drunken stupor, he began to speak to each of his sons in turn back in chapter, chapter 9. And we saw in verse 27 of chapter 9, he had this word for Japheth. He said, may God enlarge Japheth, right? May, you, may your people be big. May he enlarge your, your, your family. And God has certainly done that as we think about the descendants that come from this one man. We think about the great nations that come from him, Greece and Rome and the European powers and even America where many of us are descendants of this man, Japheth. And certainly God is faithful in this promise to enlarge him. If you read on in verse 27, it says, And let him dwell in the tents of Shem. So Noah says, Let Japheth dwell in Shem's tents. We're not exactly uh, sure what he means by this, but some speculate that this is kind of a, a prelude to the gospel. Because there's a man named Jesus Christ who's going to be a Shemite. He's going to be a descendant from Shem. And, but Noah says that, that Japheth is going to cohabitate or be blessed with his relationship with, the, with this Shemite man, I think he's saying. So I think this is a picture that the gospel is, not co- is going to reach out into all peoples, even the Gentiles. For the Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 6, the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And so we see Japheth's descendants. We secondly consider his youngest son, Ham. We see his family listed in verses from verses 6 all the way down through 20. Ham will be the father of the African nations, uh, Egypt, and uh, the Arabian nations as well. And secular anthropologists all agree they came from a common ancestor. We see he has four sons listed here. Uh, the sons of Ham, Cush, who was settled Ethiopia, and then Egypt, 
Your Bible may say Mizraim, which is just a Hebrew word for Egypt. He, of course, will settle Egypt. Uh, Put, who evidently is a golfer. And, uh, and then we have Canaan. Um, Put, uh, Canaan. Um, Put would uh, actually settle Libya. Um, and so that's where he would go. And so he has these four sons. Interestingly enough, one of them, Cush, has a son uh, named Nimrod. You see him in verse 8. Cush father Nimrod, he was the first on the earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. And so here's this uh, individual that's highlighted. Um, the idea that he's a mighty hunter before the Lord, which is listed three times here, can also be translated he's a mighty hunter in the face of the Lord or, be, or against the Lord. And, and I don't think that Nimrod's this great hunter like he bagged a lot of deer. I think what he's saying is that Nimrod was a conqueror. Nimrod was a mighty guy. He, he, uh, he conquered nations and started nations. And when you see this exactly what's happening with him as we look in verse 10, the beginning of his kingdom, that, that is Nimrod. So Nimrod evidently was a king in his day. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech and Akkad and Kalnel and the land of Shinar. From there, uh, the land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rao both Ur, Kala and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala. This is the great city. And so we see that this man has a number of cities that he's ruling over and conquering, evidently. Two of them, interestingly enough, are, are, we'll see throughout Scripture, that of Assyria and that of uh, Babel or Babylon. You, of course, know that Assyria will conquer Israel one day, hundreds of years into the future. And then what Babylon will conquer Judah one day. And these all will come from this man named Nimrod. And Babylon is used as a metaphor throughout Scripture as the godless society that stands in opposition to God's people. And so we see that this man and and from Han's descendants came some very wicked individuals. Well, he has a fourth son that we considered last week. Remember Canaan? You see him in verse 15. This is Canaan's fourth and youngest son. Canaan fathers Sidon, his firstborn, um, and Heth. And the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvidites, the Zemorites... The Hamathites, right? there's a lot of ites there. He has all these nations. Afterwards, the clans of Canaan were dispersed. And then he tells us where they settled. This is going to be very important for Israel. As Moses is writing this book of Genesis, as they uh, walk to the promised land, they're going to encounter many of these nations who descend from Canaan. You see in verse 19, the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar, as far as Gaza, in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim, as far as Lasha. And these are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the nations that, that Israel would have to fight, that Israel would, ha- would take their land as they walk into the promised land some hundreds and hundreds of years into the future. I think it must be there, therefore pretty important that we saw in chapter 9 and verse, t- verse uh, 25 that Noah said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of his brothers shall he be. And so we see that this man is already cursed from God. And so when you go and you're going to fight against these nations that come from Canaan, Israel, you should be, have confidence that God's already given them into your hands. I think what Scripture is teaching them, that they may come and take this land. Well, we see, turn lastly to Noah's last son, Shem. It's actually his oldest son. In fact, I don't know if you noticed, but in our study of Genesis, these boys have always been listed Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And all of a sudden here in chapter 10, they're reversed, aren't they? Japheth, Ham, and Shem. I think the reason why is he wants to leave us with Shem because we are about to follow the line of Shem all the way through Scripture until we get to this man named Jesus. And so he wants to end here with Shem. Of course, Shem is is where we get the word Semite or Semitic. And so the focus is going to be on him. 
We see in verse 21, he says, To Shem also, the father of the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, the children were born. Now, he doesn't say Shem fathered Eber. He says Eber was one of his descendants. In fact, Eber is Shem's great-grandson. But the reason he's highlighting this at the beginning of Shem's geology, a genealogy is that, uh, is that Eber, is the, from, from which we get the word Hebrew, is the father of the Hebrews. And so Shem's great-grandson, Eber, will give rise to the Hebrew people, will follow that line. Well, we see in verse 22 that he has five sons, the sons of Shem. Elam, he would settle the, the Persian Gulf. Asher, who would settle northern Mesopotamia. Arkbukshad would settle Chaldea, and that's where uh, Abram will be called from. Lud, who will settle Turkey, and the Aram, who will settle Syria, the Arameans. We'll begin to follow this line of Arkbashad, uh, as you notice here in verse 23, the sons of Aram, Uz, Ul, Gether, and Mash. Arkbashad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. There's Eber again, right? And then he says, to Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg. I find him interesting, for in his day the earth was divided. I don't think this is referring to a geological division. I think this is referring to the division that God brought about when he confused the language, languages in Babel. And so I think Peleg will be the contemporary there who lived in in Babylon when God uh, separated their their languages. We'll just turn back before we move on to chapter 11 to chapter 9. And you see the blessing that God placed upon uh, Shem through Noah in verse 26. You remember this from last week. He says, blessed be the Lord, uh, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. He says Shem belongs to God. He doesn't bless Shem, he blesses Shem's God. He says, Shem belongs to God, and therefore Shem is blessed, because God is blessed. And I think this continues today. You want to be blessed, belong to God, just like Shem was. And God's blessings will follow you upon your life. And so we, here we have these nations scattering all over the face of the world. And we end this chapter, and we, we look in verse 32. And the Bible says, these are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies in their nations. And from these nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. And so they begin to scatter and we're kind of left thinking that they did so out of their dutiful obedience. That they're just obeying God who has told them that they are to fill the earth. Remember back in chapter 9 and verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth. And again in verse 7. And you be fruitful, multiply, team on the earth and multiply in it. So God, just like he did in Genesis 1, grabs his people and says, I want you to fill the earth. And then we get to Genesis 10 and we see it happening. They're everywhere. They're starting nations all over the place. And we're almost left to think, well, they must have really liked God. They must have really got their act together. God told them what to do, and they went ahead and did it. Well, we are told that's not quite the case as we get to chapter 11, as we actually see why they got dispersed. You see, these two chapters are not chronologically in order. Chapter 11 precedes most of what we find in Genesis chapter 10. As we consider scene number two, the people's pride. Look at verse 1 of chapter 11. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And I think the Bible here is, is uh, setting this up for this. What are they going to do with their unity now that they all can work together? Well, we see in verse 2 uh, what they do. And as they, people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And so they go east, as we know from Genesis, is always indicative away from God. And there they find this plain, which they consider a good place to build a city. 
Verse 3 tells us, And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. We see the development of culture. We see the development of architecture here. And what are they going to do with this knowledge? Well, verse 4 tells us they plan to do two things. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens. And so they plan, number one, to build a city. I mentioned this at the beginning of architecture and urban planning and, and engineering and load-bearing calculations and math. And we see a very advanced civilization. We see that they're able to, to do a great work. Um, and so we should, I think, be somewhat impressed with these people. I don't know if God took us and dropped us in the middle of a plane if we would do quite as well as they did. They here are going to build this city for themselves, but they're, of course, not known for their city, but known for what's the center of their city. That is the tower that they intend to build. They said they're going to build a tower with its top in the heavens. So they want to erect a very large structure, a very large tower, a tower that, that will reach the heavens according to their understanding. In fact, this, this translation is somewhat difficult to understand because it could be understood that they're saying not a tower with its top in the heavens, but a tower whose top is the heavens. Many people think that this was a religious shrine. We found a number of these in this area. We call them ziggurats, these massive towers, some as tall as 150 feet tall. And on the top of the towers, what we find, interestingly enough, are engravings and carvings of astrological signs. We, we do know that, that Babylon originated the, the understanding of astrology, that we are going to let our fate be determined by the stars. And perhaps we're here in Genesis 11, we're actually seeing the very birth of astrology here in God's word. It would originate in Babylon and spread all over the world. It would soon reach Egypt, this idea of astrology. We know that the pyramids are constructed in mathematical order to line up with the stars. We know that that great statue Sphinx, whose head is a, a woman, represents Virgo, the virgin, the first sign in the zodiac, whose body represents uh, Leo, the lion, the last sign in the zodiac. The name Sphinx means joining. And so the picture of the Sphinx is as their God who's joining the beginning and the end. This is their God, according to their astrological worship. Of course, her nose fell off, so I'm not sure how powerful she is. Um, but they're going to worship there. And this is what they're perhaps doing here in Babylon. They are, they are changing the worship from the true beginning to end, the true Alpha and the Omega for others. We not only see what they're doing, but we see, interestingly enough, why they're doing it. As we read on in verse 4, we see not only they're doing two actions, but there's two motivations behind them. He says, And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. It seems to me what they don't want to do is scatter. He says, we don't want to be dispersed in great disobedience to God and His very simple commands to them. We don't want to scatter, so let's build a city. Let's build our walls so we can stay together, our little kingdom, huddle together with people we like, people just like us. And then they said, we will do so, make a tower in order to make a name for ourselves. He said, they want to be praised. They want to be highly thought of. They, they, they want the fame. They want to have a great name. You would think after God floods the entire earth, people would revere Him for a little while. They would follow Him for a little while. But unfortunately, we have this heart that's constantly exalting ourselves, that wants to rise up and be God, just like our parents Adam and Eve, who were not content to sit under His authority, but wanted to be like God themselves. We will build a tower to heaven, they say, that we may make a name. 
Of course, this Babylonian heart is not confined to these ancient people of Genesis 11. It exists perhaps in all of us. I read uh, some time ago a profile by the Arizona Republic. I quote it. It is dusk. Gordon Hall stands at, at an overlook on his 55,000 square foot mansion. He is 32 years old and a millionaire many times over. The lights of the city are like campfires of a great army to Hall who sees himself as its general. He is worth more than $100 million, he says, because it was his goal to be worth more than $100 million before the age of 33. There are other goals. By the time he is 38, he will be a billionaire. And by the time his earthly body expires and he is convinced he can live 120 years old, he will assume what he believes to be his just heavenly reward. Gordon Hall will become a god. He says, as man now is, God once was, and as God is now, a man can become. I believe I can do anything. My genetic makeup is to be a god. God created heavens and the earth. I believe I can too. Unfortunately for Gordon Hall, he would recognize that his limitations far exceed that of God, for when he turned 44, he was not a billionaire, but rather was convicted for racketeering and sentenced seven years in a federal penitentiary, where it's probably best not to tell your neighbors that you're a god. Um, and here this man, his Babylonian heart, wanted to exalt himself. It's old. I think it's in all of us. It's just not in kings. It's just not in millionaires or billionaires. It's in all of us who want to make a name for ourselves. We want to be thought highly of in the eyes of others. We want uh, to have a lot of Twitter followers or Facebook likes or even sermon downloads. We, we want people to think we're, we're great. But we're not great. None of us is great. There is one who is great. God. Great is his name and greatly is he to be praised. And so I would suggest to you that we toss aside our Babylonian heart. And rather than make our name great, that we would labor to make great the name of God. Whether that's in your school or your workplace or in your neighborhood or even in your church. That we would face circumstances not like the world and think, okay, what can I get out of this? What's best for me here? But rather we would say, what, what will make God's name great here? How can I make God's name great? And you know what that means? That may mean you don't make as much money. Or that may mean you don't get as much success or as much fame or you get the promotion. But what it does mean is that you're living for the one who is truly great and worthy to be praised. We, we, we should pray for ourselves at Hamilton Baptist Church that no matter what future holds for this congregation, that we be people filled with humility that are interested not in the name of Hamilton Baptist Church, but in the interested in the fame and the name of our God, that we would make His name great. And so God help us. God help us to be filled with humility in all that we do. These men had none of it. They wanted to make a name great for themselves. And in fact, they did make a name for themselves, just not quite the one they wanted. As we see, thirdly, the peoples divided. Notice verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. I can't help but think that there's a little bit of uh, ridicule in that verse. Uh, I don't know if you noticed it. So far, is this tower from reaching heaven that God has to do what? He has to come down to see it. From the heaven perspective, it's reaching heaven. From God's perspective, he's up there. I heard about a tower. I can't quite find it. Where did you, go, where did you all put it? 
Uh, the picture I have is that God's on his hands and knees, lowering his face to the earth to see this great tower in which man thinks he has built. I appreciate what one uh, pastor said. He must draw near, not because he is nearsighted, but because he dwells at such tremendous height and their work is so tiny. The Bible tells us in Isaiah chapter 40 that it, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Or in Psalm chapter 2 and verse 4, he who sits in heaven laughs and the Lord holds them in derision. I wonder if God chuckled a little bit when he heard their plan to build a tower to heaven. And let's just be aware that, that, that um, what, what we do is, is not all that impressive to God. You think about the greatest achievements that humans have ever done, and, and we could list a number of them. I know a number of months ago, we, a man-made um, spaceship left our solar system. The first time anything man-made has actually left our solar system. It took uh, 36 years for it to do it. Voyager 1 was launched in 1977, finally left um, the, uh, our system. It will take 80,000 years to reach the next solar system. And so we can create spaceships. God created space. He just said, let it be, and it was be. Listen, let's, let's be clear. God is not impressed with you. Right? He's not impressed with me. He loves you. He loves you more than you'll ever know. But you're not going to impress him. And we cannot impress him. And God has to come down and look upon this little tiny tower in which they made. But when he does, it's interesting what he says in verse 6. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people and all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they do, uh, that they propose to do will be impossible for them. Please don't read this as if God is threatened by them. He's thinking, oh no, they're going to rise up against me. But no, I think it's more that God is concerned. What kind of evil will they actually be able to accomplish if they're united? Look at the evil that they're already doing. Look at how they're trying to overthrow me and assert me. And, and what will they do if I allow them to continue in this unity? You see, we may make great advances which reflect God's greatness in us, but we do not have God's mor morality to withhold us from taking these advances too far. I think there are many things that perhaps humans ought not to do, even though it may be possible for us to do. I think of cloning, for example, or stem cell research. And I may say somewhat provocatively, I'm not sure we should have ever split the atom. These are things that perhaps go beyond us, that God says, I'd rather you not do. And it seems that God is saying this here to these Babylonians, and therefore he will act by confusing their language. In verse 7, come, let us go down. By the way, you notice the Trinitarian language there, don't you? Come, let us. God speaking um, to himself. They're the three persons of the Trinity. And they're confused their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. And so God comes down and changes their language so they cannot work with one another. He wants to curb that evil, doesn't he? And I don't know how this works. I don't know if they woke up in the morning and they went to work and their boss is speaking Chinese or Portuguese or, or how that works, but that's going to make it very difficult to work together. It'd be like living in a foreign movie. Um, and you just don't, you can't follow orders. You can't work together. I don't know if he did this within the home. I assume the husband and wife, they continued to speak the same language. But then again, maybe they never were speaking the same language. So um, maybe that's a little bit normal. You're all too kind. Well, we see God disperses the language, uh, changes the language. You notice the result is God has said it would happen. Verse 8. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. They just went away. Those who spoke this language settled over there, started this nation. Those who spoke this language settled over there, started this nation. The Bible says in Deuteronomy, the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance when he divided mankind. And so they left. They went off and did their own thing. We see in verse 9, they did make a name for themselves. Therefore, 
Its name was called Babel because the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over all the face of the earth. And we still use that term babbling that we get here from Genesis 11, 9 to, to have confusing language. And so we see that the people are, are dispersed by God. God wanted to fill the earth. He wanted his image bearers all over the earth. And, and he's going to see it done. His image is going to spread all over the earth. And he fills it here. But there's a problem, isn't there? Is that these people who now cover the earth are not doing so in allegiance to God. They're still idolaters. They still rebel. They still deny and decry Him. And so what then did God gain, I wonder? What has God accomplished by filling the earth with His image when His image does not worship Him? They destroy whatever image that they have. Well, lastly, I'd like us to consider the, the people united. I don't want to leave here. We're going to go to Acts chapter 2 in a moment. But I, I want you to understand that this is not God's end plan. He's just not going to leave the nations like this. In fact, we'll leave a focus of the nation. We'll focus in on one nation, the nation of Israel, in the study of Genesis. But understand this, that God did not call Israel to be His people in forsaking the nations. He didn't call Israel as His own instead of the nations. He called Israel for the nations. To bless the nations. We see this in chapter 12 and verse 3 at the very end. In speaking to Abram, the father of Israel, he says, In you all the families, nations, people, languages of the earth shall be blessed. And so we see from the very beginning that God has a plan for these nations. That he has a plan to bless them. That God is a global God. That He is a God of all people. This is also what identifies our God from the other gods that we read throughout Scripture. Those gods just loved their people and they hated all other people. Our God does not have a single people, but He uh, calls all people to Himself. He loves all people to Himself. And this is the picture of God from the very beginning. Even as our brother Steve read for us this morning, as we flash forward all the way to the end, we see in the book of Revelation, the apostle John say, I look and behold a great multitude that no one can number from every nation and all tribes and all peoples and all languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits onto the throne and to the Lamb. You see, every language will praise Him for salvation. That is his plan for the nations. He, he loves them. He's going to scatter them. And as they're scattered, the, the picture here in Genesis is, is this brokenness, this disunity. But God plans to call them to himself. He calls, plans to bring them in. You see, in Genesis 11, it seems like God is, is coming down to investigate this sin issue once again. But one day when we get to the New Testament, we see that God will come down to the earth another time. But he won't come to investigate sin. He'll come to solve sin. He'll come as Jesus. And he'll live a perfect life and he'll die upon a cross. And all the debt of my rebellion and wickedness and transgression will all be heaped upon Jesus. And he will take not only mine but yours and all who will bend their knee to him. And he will die bearing the full weight of all of our transgression. And then three days later rise victoriously from the dead. And invite all who would bow their knee to him as, as Lord and King. Placing their faith in him. That he would give them new life. And he would reconcile them back to their maker forever and ever and ever. He, he comes to solve that problem. And since that point when Jesus ascended back into heaven. He's been undoing the effects of sin. He's been uniting the peoples back into his kingdom. Into the kingdom of God. And, and, and you know this unity. 
You've experienced it if you ever met a Christian who does not speak your language. And immediately there's a camaraderie, a brotherhood, a sisterhood, an intensity of love to this stranger who happens to love your God. And you immediately love him because this is the work of the gospel. God is bringing us together, no matter the language, no matter the people. In fact, the church is the, is the first fruits of God's recreation. He's going to remake this entire creation, but he begins with the church. He begins to unite us together. He's going to therefore send us to every nation to do it. Jesus tells us in Matthew 28, verse 19, go therefore make disciples of all nations. He says, go not just to your neighbors. Yes, go to your neighbors, but go to the nations, he says, and bring them into my kingdom. Make them my disciples. In fact, we read Genesis 10. Um, You're you're not aware of this, but uh, there are 70 nations listed there. Many people draw a great significance from that for the time when Jesus in Luke chapter 10 appointed 70 individuals to go out before him and proclaim the kingdom of God. Many see what Jesus was intentionally doing for Israel understood that there were 70 nations is that he was sending out a worker for every nation, teaching them that he is going to claim all peoples for himself. He's going to bring them into his fold. And so he begins to teach this and he then bears the weight of our sin and then he raises from the dead and he says, okay, now I want you to wait because I'm going to send power on you and then you will be what my witnesses were in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and where? To the ends of the earth, to every nation. And so we come to Acts chapter 2. Will you put that on the screen for us? Let me, um, we're going to end with this passage. Acts chapter 2. This is the day of Pentecost. A glorious and beautiful day as God begins to reclaim the nations for himself. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were gathered together in one place. Verse 2, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like the mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues of fire appeared on them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together. And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear, that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, the visitors of Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongue the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? What does it mean? Well, it means God is undoing the judgment that he put on Babylon. He is removing the confusion. He is removing the disunity and the division in order that he might begin to bring people from every nation into his kingdom. Why then would God gather people from all these nations together in one place and let them hear in their own language? What is it that they hear? Well, verse 11 tells us they hear of the mighty works of God. They hear the gospel. And so what then should we do? Well, friends, I, I think what scripture teaches us is that, is that we, we are not just to huddle together. We're just not to build our four walls and spend all our time with people just like us, but we are to scatter. 
We are to go to our neighbors and our workplaces and our high school classes and make great the name of Jesus. And I believe some of you, God will call to the nations like the Tazelars and will send you to a place far away that speaks a tongue unlike yours, that you'll go to the hard places because God is claiming the nations for himself. And I don't know if you realize, but you happen to live in an unprecedented time in the history of Christianity. In the last 10 years, 300 million people have given their life to Christ. 5% of the world's population. The Christian church is growing at three times the rate of the, of the population of this earth. It's not happening in America. It's not happening in Europe. But it's happening in Asia and South America and Africa and even in the Middle East. In 1990, for instance, there were, in Cambodia were 10 churches. Today there are 1,000 churches and a new church is started in Cambodia every week. In Philippines in 75, there were 3,000 churches. Today there are 55,000. In China, in 1950, there were a million Christians. Today, there are over 100 million Christians in the nation of China. And God is expanding. He's claiming people from every kingdom, every nation, every tongue is mine. You're mine. You're mine. You're mine. And he calls. Now, here's the great thing. He calls as we end our time. He calls Hamilton Baptist Church to be involved. Not, not just to our neighbors, not just to Loudoun County. God help us if we don't reach Loudoun County. But he calls us to the nations. He calls us to support people like um, Dave and Debbie as they go to the nations. And he calls us to other works. And I just want to let you know that the elders right now are exploring a long-term relationship with a Middle Eastern country. We know two families that are getting ready to head to a closed Muslim nation. And they are in conversation with us about can we enter into a long-term partnership to reach an unreached people group. There's 700,000 of them. None of them know Christ. Not a one. And can you imagine if God uses this church over the next 10, 20, maybe 30 years, I don't know, but to claim these people back into his kingdom. We can enter into these relationships. We can give to things like the Lottie Moon Christmas offering and the offering for the persecuted church that we'll take in a couple of weeks. We pray for, for Dave and Debbie and Mike Witt and Jeff Hemby and, and, and the Zooks. And we, we pray for Kevin McKay and all those who are out there doing this great gospel work as God builds his church. But the incredible thing is he's just not building his church here in this world. Do you know what else he's doing right now? Is he's building a city in heaven. And the Bible says one day when he recreates all things, this city, the new Jerusalem, will descend and be the centerpiece of this new creation. You see, the Babylonians, they wanted a city that would endure. Well, God is going to build one that will never end. And there, the gates will never be shut, the Bible tells us. And at the center of the city will not be a tower by which we exalt ourselves, but will be a throne by which we exalt the one who is worthy of our exaltation, the King, Lord Jesus And we shall gather there. The Bible tells us that all the nations shall bring their glory into that city when we shall worship him in that place, gathered with people from every tongue, tribe, language, and nation. This is what God is doing. He's doing it in our time. And I praise the Lord that I believe he's working in this place that we may get involved in this great work, reaching our neighbors and the nations for the glory and name of Jesus Christ. I invite you this morning, perhaps you're here and you don't know this Jesus. I mean, you know him, but you have yet to surrender. If you would bow your knee to him, he will give you life. Life you've never experienced. Eternal life. You right relationship with the one who made you forever and ever. You simply have to get on your knees and say, Jesus, I believe I give you all. And he will save you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your great work. 
throughout this world. We thank you that we get to live in it. We know that you, Lord Jesus, in Matthew 24 and verse 14 says, This gospel shall be preached to every nation, and then the end will come. Perhaps the end is even in sight of our lives. Will you help us to reach the nations? Will you help us have your love for the world? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.